Hello and welcome back to the Red Sector GP podcast. I'm your host Bueno GP and today we are going to be going through the Spanish Grand Prix of 2023. As always, I am joined by my co-host Elisa, who you can follow on Twitter at Elisa Vida. And yeah, we're going to start off with some news. Um, quickly, Elisa, how are you doing? You all right? I'm doing good. Yeah. Really good after the weekend of racing. Yes, um, we're back back in Europe, so we're back at normal times um, to actually wake up for and watch racing. We're not staying up till ridiculous times or getting up really early. Anybody from Australia has just started writing a very, very uh-huh. strong email towards me, hearing me complain about that. Um, but yes, we'll start off with some news, as we always do, before we break down the racing. And I think better off to start with the good news than anything bad and i suppose i'll let you take it away and i'll 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 provide input but we do have and we uh, sh- should i say we have had an announcement of an all women's championship to follow with the world superbike paddock thoughts i think this is a a good development i think uh, i think it's something needed obviously with women uh, getting more women into racing and also having having the platform to actually race somewhere because I think it's obvious that women can race in this series and we have seen Maria Herrera and Anna Carrasco winning in Super Stock 300, Super Sport 300, uh, 600 mm. something, I don't know, some some category <laughs> I don't remember the name of. <laughs> anyway, uh, but it's obvious we have seen women race there but obviously done many of them so I think it's better to have a series where it's it's focused that women can race. Obviously, people have raised concerns over the fact that it's supposed to be the make it seem like it's the end end stop for women racing, which obviously shouldn't be. And I think it's also understandable, or it's something that people would want that this series is actually more of a stepping stone series. You know, I think in a similar way that some of the some of the uh, superbug series are. So you know, some people are racing there, but. Not, Racing there to be longer there, but also some people are looking to move forward, and I think that should be the way of it going. Obviously, we don't know beforehand, so I think only it's announced that only six rounds are going to be in, and it's gonna be yeah, yes. So, so six rounds and two races per round, so effectively twelve races. Yes, so it's early days, and obviously we'll see after after next year to see how it goes and how it develops. So you know, as, as a series, I don't think it's it has potential. You know, yeah, yeah. I think. Like with Moto E, you can't exactly go straight into it and have an eighteen round world championship. Like you just you just can't. And um as you say, we do have high caliber riders with the likes of Maria Herrera and Anna Carrasco who won the Super Sport three hundred. I think. Yes, I think I've got that right. <laughs> <laughs> um is I think it was like twenty eighteen, twenty nineteen or something. So it has been a while to be fair. Yes. Um but as soon as I saw this announced, I, I was fingers crossed that those two will be competing in that to sort of see a bit of a duel in that sense. Um, but also to see other young female talent come through and sort of, you know, bring a little bit more of a spark to the attraction of signing female talent into whether it be super stocking world super uh, super bikes, whether it be national championships or world championships. Um, I only see it as a positive and hopefully with it being in the same paddock as World Superbikes, you know, it's not like it's, um, for example, like Junior GP, which I know obviously you can't have every championship tag along with MotoGP or World Superbikes. 
but junior GP runs at certain weekends where there isn't a lot of hype because there isn't a World Superbikes or MotoGP to, to run along with it. Um, but with World Superbikes being on, hopefully the TV coverage, which we're not 100% sure on, um, what will be across, obviously, the world and in particular areas. However, if it is covered in the same package, that would be better, meaning more people will watch it. We do have news on the championship being a one, like all equal, almost like Red Bull rookies. You know, you're all riding the same bike, um, but the supplier of the bike has not been announced yet, but will be announced soon. Um, maybe Ducati, because they seem to like... Ducati does sponsor everything. <laughs> I mean, they're going to do motocross soon, so I think Ducati is a fair bit. Yeah, yeah we, we, we don't know yet on, in, terms of, in terms of what bike it will be. Um, and I'm not sure with the official press release what um, what size of bike we're talking. I'd, I'd assume it's 250s or, you know, like Moto3 or, or 675s or something along the lines of anything in that ballpark. This is not going to be, for anyone listening, <laughs> this is going to be a 1,000cc championship. Um, yeah, no. Obviously, no. if that's not obvious enough. Um, but... Two rounds per two races, sorry, per round and six rounds. Hopefully, we'll have that spanned across some good tracks. Maybe the likes of Mugello or Le Mans or Assen being one of the one of the six or two or three of the six, and maybe an Asian round. Maybe it'll be an all European ra- uh, championship for logistic sense because you know for teams to sort of fork out a lot of money for this, it would be quite hard unless it is completely funded by Dorna for them to move out into you know, around in Sepang, let's say. But I can see it more so being five, if not all six of these races being based in Europe. I see Valencia being one. I see maybe Jerez being one. One of the Italian rounds and a Le Mans or Assen. I see those sort of names popping up um, Obviously, the they are, are they announced that they need the World Super, with the World Superbikes, I think, those rounds. But I, I think... Oh yeah, of course. Sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, no, yeah. sorry, that's me. So, so sorry to completely retract on what I just said. Um, it would more likely be Catalonia. Um, that will probably be one of them. I'm, I'm in my head already. I'm thinking um, MotoGP. So yes, it could be Imola. Imola could have, could be one. Um, Magnicor could be one. I'm trying to think where else in World Superbikes would be. I mean, Aston obviously. Aston would be great. Esteril possibly. Yeah, Portimao. Portimao yeah. might be one. Many circuits um, out there, and I think starting with the European rounds, only European rounds could make sense. You know, as you said, with being uh, yeah, a uh, race and not knowing the logistics and I what agree. the audience figures and all of stuff are, are going to be for that. So yeah, I think it's yeah, I, I, I do agree. That. I think European makes more sense, pure and simply because of its very early days. You don't want to be, you know, thinking of. The, the rate it would cost to do one round maybe in Argentina when they go there with World Superbikes. And then yeah, being like, yeah, that's going to cost you more than all of the other rounds, you know I mean? So I, I think we'll see. We'll see what happens with it. But as a prospect and as an announcement, it's it's really exciting for, for women's motorsport and exciting for motorsport in general anyway because, like I said, you're going to get more eyes on young up-and-coming women's riders that may not have a, a ride in Superstock or Moto3 or Red Bull Rookies, whatever that may be, 
you know, it, it's good to see these sorts of things like W Series and F1. It's it's nice to sort of see who in that area is is sort of you know rising to the top and and showing that they can do it on a regular basis and maybe then getting a ride or a reserve ride or whatever that may be in another team like uh, Jamie Chadwick did in F1 for Williams. So yeah, it's um it's exciting news. Um, yeah, the other. Uh... Visibility. Sorry, yeah, I just said the visibility and the opportunities with that because I think even if we want to think that it's an equal equal sport and equal work, I don't think it's. I think it's still the ceiling is much higher expected for female riders to make it, yeah. and I think it's it's still you know um, just an example. You know, having Aaron kind of talk about teams looking down from it for on him for having tattoos. So I think it's very much expected that most teams would look down if 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 a woman was riding. And even if they were as good, so I think you know, see, see, having them actually have an opportunity to race, and probably, hopefully, with that, get opportunities to, if they do well to race in other series as well, because they see that how good of these riders actually are. And, you know, it's moving forwards. Yeah, um, it is sort of slowly transitioning. Well, at least I think it is with things like that, with like Aaron Kinnett being looked down upon for having tattoos, which. A lot of people old school will look at Aaron Kinnett and think, oh, why has he got his whole body tattooed? But it's a free world. Do you know what I mean? Like, you do you do what you want. I, I get for marketing, people might look down on it, but the only people that are going to look down on that are people that are very ignorant to a free world, yes. I guess. Like, the guy can do what yes, he wants. I think um, having a guy like Aaron Kinnett for your marketing, I think, in this world would do much better, actually. Yeah, so do I. I think if anything... With... It, yeah, it shows that you're, you know, you're not looking down upon somebody because of how they look, which is obviously massively important. But I think a lot of people would be surprised in big brands in all um, organizations of the world that people do still look down upon people just because of how they look or how they're perceived or, you know, how they sort of just, you know, I, it, it's still in a transitional period. Um, we're nowhere near where it needs to be. But yes, I do agree for the visibility of the sport in general and highlighting women in motorsports, this is a huge step forward. So yeah, great news to start off with. Um, in other news, other good news, we had Danny Pedrosa obviously wildcarding, which we'll get into, which was a um, lovely surprise for people that didn't catch the news, news at the start of the year that he would wildcard at Jerez. We have... Valentino Rossi becoming an official quote-unquote um, ambassador of Yamaha now, which for people that are listening that might not follow Valet and have sort of switched off since he retired, he's been riding Yamahas in every form of promotional video going. And mm. yeah, this is more just sort of like signing on the dotted line and getting paid a fat check for doing it. Um which a lot of people seem to think now that that's the stepping stone towards the R46 moving towards Yamaha for 2025, because it's looking quite unlikely for 2024 that Yamaha will have a satellite ride. Um, and I said I wouldn't describe it on the podcast because it would be quite hard to follow to Elisa, but I'm going to quickly sort of give a, a brief as possible rundown on what I think will happen with that if that is the case. So if 2025, the R46 do move to Yamaha, I think by that point, they will only move if Bezeki and Marini, because I think they'll both want to move to Ducati and stay on Ducati, um, as in move up. I think those two will go to Pramac, by which point I think Martin will already be on the factory Yamaha and Zarco at 
I think he's like 35 at that point. Um, I think he will have moved on towards superbikes because that's just how I see his career panning out with the age that he's at. Meaning there's two spaces left at Pramac, which will be Bezeki and Marini. Fior 46 move over to Yamaha, by which point maybe Morbidelli and maybe a non-Italian rider, which Fior 46 have stated and made clear that they are happy to have if they are competitive. And as Elisa said, in the Master Camp team in Moto2, they have, you know, have had and have non-Italian riders. Um, so I think that's sort of the stepping stone that Yamaha will like. And I think logistically makes more sense. I don't see Bezeki moving over to a old Marini moving over to a satellite team to change bikes for the sake of it because they've both shown that they're competitive on a Ducati and are just getting better and better. But that's silly season talk for a year and a half's time. <laughs> um, but yes, Valentino Rossi has become an official ambassador for Yamaha, which is why if anybody saw any pictures with Rossi and the higher-ups of Yamaha with the Lynn Jarvis's of the world, that's why he was pictured. Um, any good news, Elisa, before we move on to the bad? I, I, I don't think there are any, any good news at this um, stage, yeah. Okay, so as you can probably expect listening to this, we are recording this on the Monday after Hareth, which is during the testing day of MotoGP at Hareth. Um, and as I saw earlier tweeted by Simon Patterson, uh, the Honda of Stefan Bradl is testing the Kalex chassis. And just before you get your hopes up, Honda fans, he has reportedly, and I think has now been confirmed, crashed said chassis. Whether that means it is, you know, he's pushing the limits because he feels like it can be pushed, I don't know. Whether he's crashed it because it's awful, I don't know. Um, Joe Amir has also crashed today, which, as me and Elisa discussed pre-recording, is a reoccurring theme, not before anybody gives out slander, not because of Joao Mir, because the Honda and every rider has said the same. As soon as you push on that bike, it just goes sideways. Um, so it's not looking great for Honda. And as a whole, light, before we get maybe into Maybe light GP, at the end of it, the dark yeah, tunnel to actually have, yeah, maybe a light at the end of the tunnel to actually, you know, get the Kallax chassis in time. I think they, they were looking to get in, into the Heres, Heres test. I, I think I think it's too early to see a lot of steps from them. And obviously, I think oh, they yeah. haven't yeah, previously yeah. Made, made a chassis. So it's, it's still going to be a, a long work in progress. But, you know, Kallax is a good, great motorcycle maker. We... So I think it's, it's a good thing to see a chassis from them. And it probably, hopefully, at some point, seeing some progress. You say that in regards to them not making a chassis before, but if memory serves me right, I think they helped contribute towards a chassis for Honda a couple of years ago, but I think this is like the first one they've sort of gone this early and just left it completely up to Calex to go bring us something because, you know. So either way, it's it's a learning period for Calex and for Honda. However, learning period is not a good period to be in because the results are not exactly reliable to go. Okay, well, we're fighting for podiums, so let's just see if this is going to work. And if it doesn't, we'll keep what we have. Nothing is working for Honda at the minute. And as much as people can keep saying, you know, they're missing Mark Marquez, it doesn't matter. And this is applicable to Yamaha as well. It doesn't matter what team it is. It doesn't matter how good one rider is. You cannot bank a bike completely on one rider and make it unridable for every other rider. Honda, of all people, should have learned that in the last four years 
seen as though 2020, 2021, and 2022 have all been, let's just wait for Mark, let's just see how long we can last without Mark, and then realising Mark's not there and going, no one can do anything on it. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's, at this point, it's clear. It's not even a. It's not even a question of is it is this writable for one writer? It's not writable for anyone. And yeah. the question is just what can any anybody get out of it? And I think for Honda as a company, you know, they're a proud Japanese company, and seeing them work with other other manufacturers like Calyx is a good sign. But it's not a good sign because that also means that they are completely lost and they can't figure anything out. So you know, I think. Opening themselves up more is a good sign. So maybe maybe it will focus more on their strategies to also be more faster with the developments and actually hire maybe people outside outside to help with their problems. But again, yeah, it, it's one of it's those a things. Sign that, how lost they are. Yeah, and we'll get onto it a little bit more in GP talk later. But it's one of those things that I look at, and when I hear Mark Marquez and Fabio both saying for the last two years that these Japanese manufacturers need to both be a lot more versatile and a little bit less heritage and ritual and traditional based in that we do it this way, this is how we're going to do things. The Europeans are a little bit more rash and a little bit more risky and on edge, but they have both stated that they need a little bit of that. Almost feeling like Yamaha and Honda are so stubborn on this is how we do it and we will not, you know, it's like... Japanese manufacturers will not revert back. So say if Mark Marquez turns to them and says, the 2022 chassis is the one, put that on it and we'll go with that. Honda, in years gone by, have always been, no, like, we're not going backwards. That's not what we do. Like, that's what Japanese manufacturers are like. They've always been like it. And you look at the start of last year, when you remember Paco was crashing, Indonesia, Qatar, like nothing sent to really go Peko's way um and he was like this chassis is not the one and Ducati if you remember started to revert back towards 2021's chassis and move it slightly more towards that and we had this 2021-2022 hybrid chassis didn't we that we heard about that was almost like a, a mix of the two and reverting towards the older bike because Peko wasn't that much of a fan and as soon as they got it Peko was happy and it's sent to work. Japanese manufacturers are really struggling. And to be honest with you, they need to look outside because if they're only yes. going to look internally at the minute, it's looking very, very outdated. And, um, you know, with the major area that gives gives you the performance right today, right now, about now, it's aerodynamics. And I think that's the major. They don't, Japanese manufacturers, for some reason, don't believe in that, which is. I don't know what's going on behind. I can't. I can't tell you what they are thinking about it. But uh, it's it's very clear that the era is the way to go at this moment. That it's clear that they don't have the in-house stuff yeah. in both Yamaha or Honda to develop those. And I, I think it's also the philosophical idea that you see. You know, they're bringing these different era packages. But instead of thinking that you know that's something to add on, it's the idea that manufacturers like Ducati, you know, built their entire bike as a as a as a complex thing, you know, with the era in mind. So from start to finish, it's thought that era is the, is the fundamental part. It's not some wings to be added on. It's it's a fundamental part of the whole building process. So it works as a complete machine. And I think that's one of also one of the one of the major reasons why why these manufacturers are failing because 
you know, it's it's yeah. not like the Honda Attic are the slowest or, or like ten seconds slower than the rest of the grid. No, but it's just they are missing the arrow. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. Well, I mean, we'll, we'll obviously touch a lot more on it in terms of relating it into the context of results later on. Um, but in terms of news, we're sort of reporting on that as of today and sort of seeing how things are going in the test. Um, I don't have any other crashes to report, but the two that I have seen are Honda, um, which I know a lot of people listening that have listened for a while will probably look at me saying that as though I'm like, <laughs> but I'm, no, like, you know, I, I'm not I'm not going to sit there and, and joke around about, uh, you know, s- such a big deal of Honda struggling in such a weird way it's not it's not like you know they have a bike underneath them and no one can get it across the line and it's not like they have a rider that can get it across the line and showing that they can do that on that bike okay rins but apart from america where like rins hasn't been up there and fighting and literally when he got to america he was you know i feel great here this i don't know what it is about this track all of her struggling 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 like this bike doesn't work it just does not work um so we'll get into it a little bit more later but all the news i don't know if i already said but anea bastianini was declared fit um and then ended up withdrawing because of you know various pain through through his injury and probably will be back for Le Mans, i'm guessing um but whether he'll actually make it through that weekend i'm not sure um, and then we had Mark Marquez with a press conference on Thursday. At press conference be... wasn't a press conference, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> it ended up being a media scrum, didn't it? Um, which he basically went into detail about agreeing with the penalty, which I do want to quickly just chuck, um, just sort of have my say on. I think Mark Marquez going against Honda appealing not people might think I'm saying that and, and miswording it or taking words out of people's mouth Honda appealed Mark Marquez's penalty that he was given upon the um incident with Miguel Oliveira at Portimao so Honda appealed it right Mark Marquez having you know I'm doing a press conference and whether it wasn't a press conference or not sort of being like this is for me. This is not Mark and Honda and, you know, and a full normal press conference. Mark came to Hareth, had his had his, had his his press moment and has come out and gone, I agree with the penalty. To me, that is like a massive kick in the teeth to Honda to be like, you can appeal it, but I, I think it's fair enough. I think it just makes Honda look so no stupid in general. I, I really do. I, I genuinely think that that is like, for, for Mark and Honda to just be like, not on the same page, but I thought Mark would come out and be like, old Mark would be a bit more, I don't think I did anything wrong, but I think Mark at this point is almost a little bit like, because of his injury, leading on to the other part of the media um, scrum that he had, was kind of in shock of how long it was seeming to take, and has been told by doctors that, you know, there is absolutely no point riding, because if he was to crash, it would be a possible end of the career sort of crash. I don't know it. I don't think it was as anticlimactic as people were making out it, it it to be, but I do think it was quite surprising to see Mark a little bit more, not vulnerable, but a little bit more realistic in what he was saying. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I'd also have to say about the penalty. I think uh, the deal always was Mark agreed that the penalty was correct, but I think they 
thing was uh, uh, the appeal. It, it was not on the penalty itself, but just the application. Because yeah, the, yeah, I know. Yeah, and I think, they I don't were, think they were obviously fighting appeal. it. Yeah, yes, they were obviously think... appealing it to be like, not the penalty, but you said that it was only for which, in hindsight, I do actually agree with Honda in the sense of, like, why have you only put it for one race? No, I know they weren't saying, they were saying, you've put it for one race and we're not racing at that race, so it doesn't count. But I agree with everybody else's point of view of why have they put it for one specific race? So yes, I get, I think yeah, I get what you mean. The they were the iceberg in, yeah, in the but, saga that is inconsistent penalties given, and I think it's just continuing on this week. Oh, yeah. If you look at the penalties, yeah. you know something stayed the, the previous save <laughs> stewards, GP. save the stewards rant till later. We will yeah, get to the yeah. stewards. But anyway, I, I'm more than anybody. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm more than anybody want to start raving about the stewards. Um, but, but I... yeah, I do. I do agree. Um, I just, I don't know. It felt really weird because in years gone by, we've always seen like if Mark's had a penalty or something's happened, he sort of walks around with Honda, whether it be with Puig or with other Honda representatives, and it's almost like a we don't agree with that. Whereas I felt a little bit from what Mark was saying. It was almost like, no, it's fine. But to be honest with you, I'm kind of annoyed because I should be here, but I can't do it. I, I, you know, I'm struggling. It was a little bit, I don't know. I, I think if I was Honda watching that, I would be a little bit like, we are really in the mud. Like, we, you know, like we've got a rider there that looks very, like not down, but he, he did look and sound very sort of, I don't know, not pessimistic, but, disappointed i think more than anything he obviously is disappointed because he's not riding but i think he knows that the championship's gone this year i think he would have said that at the start of the year anyway internally with what the bike's like but then this puts massive pressure on what let's just go into full context here mark marquez is in his last year of the honda contract next year so if Honda don't bring something next year to a guy that already looks like he's been, well, doesn't look like he has been thrown in a washing machine and spat back out and is, you know, struggling with injury. If they don't bring him a bike next year, I think there's going to be a massive shakeup in terms of I don't I don't see Mark re-signing with Honda if that bike doesn't improve this year and next year is not radically radically changed because if it's anything like this year why would Mark Marquez resign yeah I think also I have to agree that it, obviously it was not good news to not see Mark race there but I think it was good news in the instant of Mark's attitude towards the racing because I mean he had to be told by three different medical teams that yeah. it would be career, in, career ending but he still stayed you know he, he made the decision to stay home after that mm. you know I think he could have been probably been fit to race if he if he had wanted to be in that sense but i think in terms of mark's own attitude towards and actually having i hate to say learned from the crash because i don't think there's anything to be learned from something an injury like like it just happens you know you get hurt at points you can't really say that it's you know some some teaching moment necessarily but he did learn from from the heret crash and you know i think it's obviously a bad way to learn something but still you know in terms of mark's own attitude towards the injuries but i think this and you know having the Honda not not be the best bike, but be the worst bike. Yeah, I agree that. I I think that if if he isn't close to winning races at the end of this year, 
I think it's it's very likely that he will leave, and he probably won't be yeah. winning as the Honda. I can't see it taking that that much of a step forward, but it's it's very likely that you know I mean, even even if he feels some old loyalty towards Honda because they stayed him with him through the injury, you know I think I still think he'll choose to have a shot at the title anywhere else. And I think yeah, even no. if he does resign. It won't be four years because I don't think Honda would be as stupid to go. Well, he'll probably be fit for the next four years because if Mark, do you really think, right, at the end of twenty twenty four, let's say he signs for another four years on a Honda, be totally honest here, right? And I know you're, and I'm only saying this. I know you're not. I'm not saying that you're biased in any way, shape, or form. But you're obviously more lenient to wanting to see Mark do well. Do you honestly think in four years, 25, 26, 27, 28, that Mark won't have another crash that will put him out for a long time? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very likely with his... Because the older he gets, obviously... the more, you know, it's going to be worse, isn't it? It's, yeah, he's no, not obviously, 22, and I... 23 anymore. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's not a question, I don't think. I think, as, as Mark discussed with his, in his documentary, I think he saw this contract being his last contract, which is his one currently. But obviously, it didn't take into account the fact that he was out for all the, almost entirety of this contract in terms of like competitiveness. So, you know, you'll probably see him signing for one or two years at somewhere else to, you know, get that one last championship, at, at least the one run for a championship. I don't know. I don't know whether how he feels if he gets, you know, to actually fight for a championship on a competitive bike. How he feels if he doesn't win the championship, obviously we can't say. But I think he's he's looking forward to, you know, going going out on one last glory run, so to speak, even even if Well, yeah. if memory serves me right, both KTM riders are out of contract at the end of next year. And That's there's always been this sort of Red Bull and KTM sort of link, hasn't there, sort of rumoured around Mark's name. And as much as people now, I think, are a little bit more, no, that'll never happen. Are KTM going gonna to get to the end of 2024 and think, well, we've, we've done this now for nearly eight years, whatever it is, seven or eight years, and we're nowhere fighting for a championship. They might be. They might be. But if they're not, one last hurrah with Mark, somebody that has proven that he can win a championship. Um, you never know. You never know. I think it's it's not as likely as it was previous years, but I think even at this point, you know, depending on Mark's health, obviously, but I think if he, yeah. if he stays fit for now, the end of the year, something like that, if he proves that he's still competitive, which I think he can, I don't think it's out of the realm of possibility. Like, if, if Mark went to any factory and said, you know, I'll do it for free, you know, just for a championship. I don't think it's another fellow possibility for I don't any think Mark Marquez is going to do that for free. Yeah, I, I don't think either, but I don't think, like, like, compared to previous years, I don't think money is not the issue at this point anymore. Oh, no. Like, it's not, no, obviously Yeah, not. money is not the issue and anything like that. I mean, I in, 2020, major... in 2020, he gave most of his salary back to Honda, which shows yeah. he's he's doing all right, you know what I mean? I mean, yeah, if, you've watched I think... the, if you've watched the documentary, it, he's doing all right. I think he'll be fine. Yeah, I think the major issue might be the fact that he wants probably to have his team with him, and that mm-hmm. might be a problem with some manufacturers. But yeah, we'll see. It's different though, isn't it? When it, when you've got a Marquez or a Rossi, it's like when Rossi went to Ducati. And in that moment, they're looking at a nine-time world champion, and they're going, 
So then, Valentino, you want your you want your you know crew chief. I want my right hand man. I want this. I want that. They want Alex Briggs and the likes of that have worked for him for years under under Yamaha. And, I yeah. and they, I think that was more just a well, we're going to get Valentino Rossi. So yes, anything. Yes, I think they do it. But to be I honest, think I think this is more of a Valentino Rossi going to the Petrobras Yamaha team, and he couldn't take most of his team. Yeah, that's a bit different, it. though, isn't it? When he's yeah. when he's like 40, 41. Yeah, obviously. But I mean, I'm also saying that Mark isn't, you know, Mark isn't 2019, Mark. You know, he's, he hasn't won a championship in three years. Yeah. He has been, has had the injuries, you know. Obviously, it's an upper game, and it could very well be that he doesn't get another injury again, and it could be that he has a career ending injury next year, you know. You never know. Mm. But then again, you know, it's, it's, it's not the same situation that it was previously. So I think, you know, it's... He doesn't have as much leverage when talking, but also, yeah, I'd still say most manufacturers were would be stupid to say no to him for one season. I mean, imagine that that I think they would earn back probably like a quarter of his salary, if not more, in just merch sales. Yeah, it's, it's like imagine if his imagine, popularity is in, so big. Imagine the Spanish income. Of manuf- of merchandise for somebody like KTM if you sign for KTM. Imagine that. Like every diehard Marquez fan, which are a lot of the Spanish motorsport fans and you know MotoGP fans, if two thirds of them bought a Marquez shirt with KTM on it, <laughs> bear in mind how big it is in Spain, then everybody else around the world and and the amount of people that are KTM fans i.e. Matt, that is going to be like, we've got Mark Marquez. I need to buy a shirt, a coat, a vest, uh, pants, everything. Like, you know, you'd buy Mark Marquez KTM shoes if you could. Um, yeah, I'd, I just see it being like a massive lure, but you don't know. It, it's it, it's very much in the dark with, um, with, with that sort of thing. So y- you never know. But anyway... Um, any more news? I don't think there's any more news in regards to... Yeah, with to... Mark's absence, we obviously had Iker Lecuona from the Superbike. Oh, of course, for, yes. Of for, course. For, to replace Mark, and I think you know, I think this was maybe Honda showing some gratitude for him winning the Suzuka 8 hours. And yes. All. He seems to be beloved by the Honda team, which I think, you know, it's sort of which nice is fair to enough. Iker, Iker back. He, I, think yeah, he, I, I think he deserves a GP ride, but... Um, <laughs> another... Oh, just before we finish off with news, we had um, the cancellation of the Kazakhstan Grand Prix. Um, I don't think anybody is crying their heart out unless you're from Kazakhstan or neighbouring countries that you can no longer visit that Grand Prix. Um, but I, I didn't see it as a surprise, sadly enough. Like That's the only reason I wasn't that sort of you know ripped apart by it, on top of the fact the track does not look in any way, shape, or form. I, it, it's very, you know, bad for me to sort of preempt this and just assume. But the track doesn't look in any way appealing to me. I, I don't. It, yeah, it, it's like um, it's like if Qatar and Thailand had a baby. For me, um, that's kind of what it reminds me of. Which. Yeah, as stated before, I'm not a big fan of Thailand. And yeah, I don't know. I just don't really see it being that big of a, a deal to miss out on. So it has joined the realm of the Kimi Ring 
and the circuit of Wales of circuits that probably might not end up ever surfacing um, to a Grand Prix calendar, which as, probably not. I as Elisa knows, is very painful. It's, it's. I mean, I'm, I'm sure you know. There's, there isn't the massive market, but I, I'm sure there are some Kazakhstan fans that are upset by this, and I, I understand the feeling. I have to say, all my sympathies to anyone from around the world. Those types of, and also we just, you know, it's, it's just sad to see races go. Obviously, I think this is just some, some sign from above that that says the calendar shouldn't be longer than 20 races because every 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 time it has been they have been trying to make a long race calendar longer than 20 races it's not going to plan so i think that's just that's just a sign to not make it any longer but... which i don't think many people would be against i know everyone's you know at home is happy to sit there and say more races the better but you know the, these these riders are human at the end of the day you can't you can't have 21 22 23 different locations around the world and then not expect the likes of look at bastianini now and be missing two three four rounds like people say this doesn't happen in world superbikes it's like well yes because world superbikes have about 11 or 12 rounds they're, they're raced like every three months i feel yeah. like yeah. yeah yeah so that you wonder why they have most riders there at every event and you don't have so many injuries and so many mishaps with logistics like last year when we had um what did we have was it portimao no it wasn't portimao argentina yeah i know but what was the race before it i can't remember what the race was before it was it qatar it was qatar, qatar. wasn't it mm-hmm. um yes. qatar to argentina i believe it was yes. and we had to delay everything well you know we, I, there there are many i mean i remember last year when we had a two-week gap between, I believe it was Misano and Aragon, but then we had Japan the next week. Now, for yes. anybody that is not a geography, um, let's say, if you if geography is not your strong point, that is going from the east coast of Italy and having a two-week gap to get to the middle of Spain and then having a week to get from the middle of Spain to the north of Tokyo which is a lot, 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 lot further than the east side of Italy to the middle of Spain. So Yeah, this, these teams yeah, and these logistically, people, you know, they're human. It's a lot yeah. of work to travel everywhere around the world, and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of pressure, yeah. So the yeah. calendar should be, should be at maximum 20 races, and yes. that's pushing it, I feel like. 20 races and just sensible decisions. It's like... Was it Argentina and the US? Were, I can't remember what it was. But Portimao, yeah, that was it. This year, Portimao to Argentina was a week gap. But Argentina to America was two weeks. Now, by no means am I saying Argentina to the state of um, Texas is a short trip. But that is it's a lot easier of a trip than Portimao. Because of, um, you know, like logistics with ferrying all the equipment across, that is a harder trip because of where Argentina is based than, you know, Portimao to Argentina. That's a lot easier of a trip to go to America. But we had two weeks to do that, but we had a week after the first round from Portimao to Argentina. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying you can just pick and choose whenever you want and slap them in wherever and go, oh, that makes more sense for everybody logistically. 
you're going to have the odd round, you know, with 20, with 20 races, you're going to have the odd round that's a little bit back to back, but there is regular um, questionable logistical decisions with the calendar layout. But that is another story for another day. On to the racing, eventually, we do get there. Mm-hmm. Um, in Moto3, we had a finishing order of Ivan Ortola, David Alonso, first Colombian in a world championship to get a podium, and Jaume Masia. Now, an interesting race in the sense of, I did think at one point that Ortola and Holgado were going to clear off. And then Masia almost had this aura about him, I felt, that looked upon, like, old Messiah thinking this guy's going to, he's going to catch, and he could then maybe gap, or almost, he just looked quite confident, I think, um, which I'm assuming he was, because he's in decent form. Um, But that's not quite how it worked out, and then I saw Dennis Onchu slightly, you know, Leak further and further back. Which don't don't talk to I, me about I, Dennis Onchu. I've I've jinxed the guy since giving him my prediction of the championship winner at the start of the season. Um, so it was it was a weird one. Um, which eventually he ended up catching up with Suzuki behind him and Sasaki in front of him. Um, yeah, just quite weird. But we had two incredible rides from both the rookies in David Alonso and Jose Rueda which I think are definitely worth a shout-out in terms of... Obviously, Rueda finished in fifth, and David Alonso did get on the podium, but they both raced incredibly well, considering the naivety, usually, of a um, rookie against people like Masia, Sasaki. They just looked so confident, and for anybody that does watch Junior GP, you will know that Jose Rueda last year wiped the floor with everybody at Jerez, so I was quite intrigued to see how he'd get on. Um, performing at Jerez in the World Championship, and he didn't disappoint with the P5. Any points to talk about here, um, Elisa? Yeah, I think Sasaki also. You know, he he made some. Obviously, he's in the rookie, but he made he made some good inroads at the uh, just the late latest stage of the race. I think he he actually managed to get up to to fight for the victory, which was more than Denis Andrew could do at the same point. You know. You know, riding at the same point at the same times of the um, race, and definitely, you know, it, it was the last lap shootout you were expecting. This might it looking like a like a two horse or three horse race at some point earlier earlier in the race. And yeah, it's it's just it's more of three. You know, you have these six riders going for the victory, and you can just throw a die out there and and say that who, who's gonna win it. You know, it's yeah. obviously Ivan Ortola managed to get his. Second victory, and now in a row, two in a row, which good momentum for him. I, I really didn't expect this coming from it's him. It's almost like obviously. that saying, isn't it, of like when you wait for a bus for so long and then two come at once. It's, yes. it's sort of surprising to see him win two races in a row when he's never won before. Yeah, and I have to say, you know, um, really not something I expected also from Moreira being that far down. He was mm. somewhere around the 10th. Probably. Which I think, he if had... anything, give you've got to give credit in a weird sense, but you've got to give credit in the, because of how high of a standard we now expect from him. Do you know what I yeah, mean? That's like, true. Now everyone's like, oh my God, he's down. It's like when, again, high comparison, but it's like when Acosta in Moto2, like in Argentina, was nowhere. It's like people are going to be thinking, oh, he's, he's nowhere near as good as what he should be. 
but that's because you expect so highly of somebody like Acosta. Marrera, in this sense, everyone's got him as a pick for a championship. Well, a lot of people have him for down for, to win the championship, if not contend for it. And to see him down in P10, he was, wasn't he, for the most part, um, finished in P10, 4.3 seconds off the race lead in that back group that Dennis Onchu ended up finishing in front of because of his penalty. Um, and yeah, it, it was quite weird. I did expect him to sort of cut through, and I did expect with the qualifying pace of Romano Fanati, I didn't expect him to drop off, um, which he did. And speaking of dropping off through no fault of his own, uh, Ryusai Yamanaka, obviously having that me- oh, mechanical no, failure, yes. I felt really I was bad. So for sad him. because he he at one point looked like he wasn't able to go with Messia to catch up Holgado and Ortola, but he he really did have good pace to set with them. And unfortunately, I'm not sure. I didn't read into what the fault was, but he did remount. Yeah, very and issue, I think of, it was. Yeah, he, he he collected data for the rest of the race, but unfortunately, he saw his podium potential just vanish in front of him because of that fault, which was very sad to see. Um, we did have a couple of non-finishes in. We had both of the Sitch Squadra 48, uh, 58, 48, 58 Squadra Corsa um, riders in Kaitatoba and Ricardo Rossi. Both crashed. I don't know if it was at the same corner. I can't remember. I think Kaitatoba crashed at the Danny Pedrosa corner. And I can't remember off the top of my head where Rossi crashed. But they both did fail to finish. And we had David Salvador, who had a huge high side. Um, that guy cannot catch a break in terms of Every time he seems to fall off, it is in no way, shape, or form a small one. Yeah, hopefully he's, he's all good. That looked horrible. Hmm. Yeah, not not great for David Salvador, which, you know, he's, he's not on the most competitive bike on the CIP Green Power bike, but he's not going to be moving any further forward in the grid of where he was fighting originally if he cannot finish races because, like I said, a minute ago, he seems to have huge crashes um, in Moto3, and yeah, he, he has great pace and has shown really good potential in practice sessions throughout this weekend and all year, I think, um, but just not managing at the minute to put things together in the race. We have, for Brits finishing, we have Scott Ogden in P12, finishing 4.7 seconds off the race win, and we have Josh Watley in 24th, finishing 35 seconds behind the race win. And we did have the returning, um, the return, sorry, of David Almanza, who was on, not on the CF Moto, because we did have Joel Kelso back in this weekend. Um, but we did have David Almanza as a wild card, not a replacement rider racing this weekend. So um, some interesting results, some 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 good performances. I do quite like to see... Filippo Fairoli do quite well in P14, which to most people might not seem that good of a result, but he is a rookie this year in Tech 3, and what really impressed me with him at Portimao when I went was how many laps he was willing to do on his own. For a rookie, I really do like to see that in riders that are not completely straight away adamant on following riders and you know sitting behind riders for the whole of the weekend. He seems to really work well on his own race pace. So, yeah, nice to see him get pick up a couple of points. Um, any pointers? Any any points to make, Elisa? Anybody that frustrated you apart from Dennis Anju? Uh, Dennis Anju, just, uh, it, it was weird. He had a long lap penalty and he didn't take it. So that was a, that was a weird one, but I, I don't know. 
Yeah, I think so it's it probably just because he got told or maybe turned and thought that's more than three seconds. I'll just yeah, but probably. I don't. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I don't. He know. didn't I, explain it anyway. I, I I follow him on social media. He didn't really explain any, yeah, no. anything on on that. So yeah, I'm just I'm just hoping for better for him. You know, he he did get the pole position. So yeah, maybe next week and he gets it. You'd run off the result and qualify and actually get to result. Which also makes me just quickly make a point of we have yet to have this year in 2023 a pole winner. So someone who's been on pole and converted it into a win in no two three. So uh, Dennis Onchu made sure to um made sure to keep up that that streak. Um yeah. anybody else? It, nothing really, you know. I'm I'm liking what I'm seeing from Masia, you know. Yes, he's, he's doing the best out of the veterans, so to speak, <laughs> you'd expect to be fighting for the championship. He's sitting fourth in the championship, championship standings, you know, 12 points behind the leader, uh, Daniel Holgado. So he, he's doing what he has. And obviously third, you know, he wanted more. But I think, you know, this is what you need to be doing, not crashing out and not finishing down. So. Yeah. Um in terms of riders of the day, we don't have a contribution from Josh, but we do have one from Matt. Matt has picked Jose Rueda and has said that the rookie continues to impress him, which, again, I think a lot of people uh, would agree with that. Um, do you want to pick first? I'll let, I'll let you pick first for Mozo 3 if you have a pick. Uh, mine is David Alonso, just because he climbed up from quite down the, from the grid, and I think he actually, you know, it wasn't just he had a good start, but he actually actually made the moves forward, forward and managed to get, catch the front yeah. front group and almost won the race. I think that was a good one. Also, again, nice to see Colombian a Colombian rider out there. So, yes. Yeah, I think normally I would go with somebody, obviously, that has finished in a top position. Like, I was really impressed with... Um, with Xavi Artigas, who continues to impress me. I, I really like to watch Xavi Artigas since he was in Julie World Championship um, and come through. Unfortunately, didn't keep his ride at Leopard, but proves that even on a less competitive bike, typically anyway, that he, I think he's like third in the championship as well. He keeps picking up really good points and always fighting at the front in all conditions he's on fifth, all tracks. But yes, yes, fifth. he's fifth. So that's, 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 that's great. That's good. Yeah, that's really good. Um, so yeah, me Artigas. I'll give it Artigas, but I'll I'll give a shout out, like I said earlier, to Fireoli. I, I I really do like the look of the kid. He um he he does excite me. Does young Filippo? Um, any points before we move on to Moto Two? Not necessary. No, nothing no really. Points to move on. Okay, which I will move on to Moto Two, which we had a finishing order. Of Sam Lowe's winning the Grand Prix with Pedro Costa and Alonso Lopez in third. Obviously, I should be extremely happy because we have a Brit winning a race, which is a nice change. Um, incredible qualifying by half a second by Sam. And as soon as I saw Pedro Costa lead this race, I thought, this is it. I thought, this is where Sam, unfortunately, as much as it pains me to say, I thought Sam would maybe either give in to that pressure and try and chase him um and and maybe maybe fall or just fall back because it's it's been a bit of a mixed bag this season with Sam but when Sam got out front I couldn't believe how good a pace he could just keep setting that's the old Sam Lowe's that I love to see um which I will say already that Matt has gone against the 
which he seems to keep <laughs> going against the red sector rule of not going for a race winner for Ryder of the Day, has given it some lows for a well-deserved win. Um, but absolute all um, praise Sam Lowe's because it was it was a fantastic win. And I think this race was a typical, what you would probably call, now call a typical old school Moto2 race, wasn't it? It was it was kind of a, sl- a split bunch with manage. It was more management, wasn't it, than anything. Um, great pace by Pedro to keep Sam honest. Uh, finished 2.8 behind him with Alonso Lopez nearly 10 seconds behind Sam Lowe's which was followed by a group of Tony Arbolino, Sam Lowe's teammate, Aaron Connett, Jake Dixon, Somkiat Chantra, and then two seconds, three seconds further back with eighth place, Albert Arenas. But all in all, there were some really good rides in here. Quite interesting to see the crash between Ayagora and Tony Arbolino because I, I, I just, there was no contact, but it was almost like Ayagora tripped up on, on himself. Um, Wasn't there a bit of contact at the end? It, that's what I mean. It, it looked like there was, but there wasn't. It wasn't definitive contact to make him. You know, it, it, it yeah, was no, no, like... yeah, no, no, making it, but just the lines crossing. Yeah, it, it yeah. reminded me a bit of. I, I can't say if this is an accurate comparison of the of the Rossi Marquez crash in was it Argentina twenty fifteen? Yeah, when, I know it's crashing. Uh, yeah, 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 but I think that. That it reminded me a bit of that, you know, nobody's fault. But, well, you know, I mean, to just... quote the exact corner, it reminded me a little bit of Tony Elias, Valentino Rossi, two thousand and six, which, yes, I do somewhat have a life, but <laughs> yeah, that is a uh, that is kind of what it reminded me of. But I know what you mean in the sense of two lines crossing. However, it wasn't, you know, I think Iagora is obviously going to be frustrated. Of course, he is with Tony Arbolino, but if you're Tony Arbolino, you there wasn't. There wasn't anything he could have really have done. Do you know what I mean? It wasn't yeah, it's like a clean a... pass. He was informed, yeah. you know. It, it, it wasn't like a... Yeah, yeah, it was um, a bit of a weird one in that sense. But, yeah, as I was saying earlier with the, the amount of seconds between riders, for Pedro and Pedro Acosta and Sam Lewis to be, well, Pedro seven seconds in front, but Sam ten seconds in front of everyone else in the in the pack, that I genuinely think, and this might be bold saying this, and people might think I'm biased saying this, I think that's probably the ride of the season so far, across all three across all three um, classes. If we're if we're just talking about race winners, that or Tony Arbolino at Argentina, I think that's that's probably my pick. Maybe Suzuki at Argentina was a good ride. Um, no, I still say Marco Bezzecchi at Argentina. <laughs> Bezzecchi was a good ride. Bezzecchi was yeah. a good ride. But in terms of how much quicker Sam was to the whole grid on a track that, as we always hear and always bang on about, everyone is quicker at ref. Everyone says that. Riders say that. You know, I remember speaking to Eddie O'Shea and he was saying that, you know, when you go to Hareth, it's the competitive level is incredible because there's not anyone there that's slow. So for Sam Lowe's to be that much quicker... um yeah, tip of the hat. That is not that is not me being biased in any way. That is that is an incredible ride. I can I can Sam. confirm as a non non British person, I have no love lost for the English, so I can say it was a good great <laughs> ride from Sam, you know. But I think uh, you know it's good for him to get a good result actually because I don't, yeah. last season was horrific. And it was I mean, hard. Yeah. I uh, I haven't followed Moto two that closely, but I've understood that you know. These results are not the problem for Sam. It's the other results of crashing, you know, usually. Yeah, 
yeah no it's it's been a hard um it's been a hard 18 months with sam um well internally i assume in his group of people and whatnot i read his brother's post saying that he's he's been kind of giving off that he's not as affected by the injuries and stuff as what he actually has been and mentally it's been really draining for him to sort of keep up this kind of let's just keep going and sort of you know the mentality and everything else which it is it is draining for anybody to do that you know when when you're struggling and you don't speak out about things in general anyway it, it drains the life out of you and when you're in such a high level of competitiveness that you are in a class like moto 2 that the field has gone through the roof in terms of talent it's you know it's it's very hard it's very hard to keep that up so to see him get that race win and you could feel the sort of release in park Ferme that he had of just like i needed that and i, I really hope that it spurs him on to if he, even if he doesn't fight for this championship i hope it spurs him on to keep up a good form that we know we, he can have um just quickly lovely to see the moment with him and Adam, yes. you know in park Ferme, and you yes. know it's, it's really they have a good relationship i hope it stays that way and he's still you know yeah yeah, I mean, obviously Magello last year didn't help with the relationship. I remember when I saw Sam in the airport after Magello and he, he was like, we were all right. We've not been all right this weekend, but I'm sure we'll be all right next weekend. That's what Sam's like, you know, obviously he was going to be annoyed because he got took out by him, but he can still see past it. And they seem to get on so, so well, which is, like you say, it's, it's nice to see when not everybody... Like, I, I kind of get this aura of... F1 and GP fans and just in general motorsport fans that want everyone to fall out and everyone to have a rivalry and it's like I, I get what you mean but at the same time it's nice to see a teammate that sort of gets on with the other one and you know I saw it in F1 with Alonso and Stroll and obviously it's a little bit different because Stroll's dad owns the team but in the same breath Alonso doesn't need to help anybody do you know what I mean he doesn't if they said at the end of the year Alonso you're out of a right out of a drive he's not going to be like Oh well, I'm gonna to have to go and work at the petrol station or something. Like he's, he's, you know, doesn't need to do it, but it's nice to see a bit of a cooperation between between teammates. But we did um, just quickly have a non-classified rider section of Ayagora, Sean Dillon Kelly, and Celestino Vietti. And speaking of mentality, Vietti looked broken after he crashed. He really looked like he just completely just ran down really I, I mean i'm speaking on just you know the outside looking in but i don't know about you elisa but when he when he crashed before he picked himself up it was almost like you know forget the bike forget forget anything else it was just pure like demotion almost it looked like he, he was just being downgraded to like like that was it Do you know what i mean it, it was almost like that in his head it just looked like I don't know what I'm meant to do anymore. Like, I don't know. Yeah, I think that man just... He just needs to see some checkered flags, you know. I think that would do him really good, probably. Yeah, but it's it's hard, isn't it, when, you, when you've shown in so many races that you can be so competitive and being told, you know, just make it to the checkered flag. And if you know that the only way you can make it to the checkered flag is by finishing last. Yeah, probably. I... Mentally, that's that's really draining, isn't it? Must be tough. Yeah, I don't envy him at all, I think. Yeah, it's um it's been it's been a bit of a 
roller coaster with Celestino this year already. Um, but yeah, in terms of the Brit watch, which I'll just quickly touch on, obviously we did have Sam Wynn, we had Jake Dixon in 6th, and we had Rory Skinner in 24th. Um, yeah, it was, it's, it's been, it's been an interesting one with Moto2, because like I said, it was a very much an old school race, there wasn't too much to touch on. Um, do you have a rider of the day though, Alisa, for Moto2? Um, I think my rider of the day has to be, I'm going to pick Alonso Lopez, you know, finishing third, okay. I think that's a, that's a good comeback race from him in terms of like previous races not being as good. As when he was previously on the podium, so I think that's a good, good race from him, and you know, showing some bonuses in form. Yeah, good pick. Um, I am gonna go for. Um... Oh, wait, I also realized I wanted to say something. I was happy to see Lukas Tulovic get some points. I mean, yes. I know people crashed in front of him, but I also realized that he hasn't. This is actually his second pole point finish ever in the championship. Because he has raced in Moto Two like a couple seasons back, and he had raced in Moto E before that. So I think you know, hopefully get some more points finishes on the board. And you know, nice yeah. to see riders from other nations as well. I remember when he yeah. raced. I think it was for Kiefer Racing. Um, he raced the KDM in twenty nineteen. Yeah, I remember when he raced for Kiefer Racing. I think it was twenty seventeen, if memory serves me right. And that bike was. Not the most competitive, um, as Domi Agito will um, agree with, and Taron McKenzie will agree with. It wasn't the the greatest bike. I don't. I could be wrong in saying that, though. I think I don't know if that was the the team he rode for, but he, um, yeah, I remember when he had the old school eighties front decal of the big yellow box behind his number, with the big fat bold um, number three on it, which I quite like. Quite like a bit of an old. 80s, 90s touch to the likes of Rainey, who always had that big yellow box behind his number one. Just looks quite um, vintage and authentic. Um, in terms of riders of the day, I'm going to give my rider of the day to Sergio Garcia because for a rookie to be in points again in Moto2, I really don't look past. And I think it's such a hard jump from Moto3 to 2 anyway. And like I said earlier, with the field of competitiveness already in Moto2 and at Jerez, that these guys test that. You know, they, you've got to remember that Moto2, Moto3 tested at Jerez when MotoGP were at Portimao. And yeah, the, the level of, of speed that these guys have got around this place on these bikes are the likes of Samlos that have been around the block. To be fighting for points is one thing, but as a rookie, is a whole nother. So yeah, my, my pick is Sergio Garcia. So we have riders of the day of Alonso Lopez, um, Sergio Garcia, and Sam Lowe's, which is a good good pick, I think. Um, no news on Moto2 in terms of anything silly season-wise. Still a little bit too early to be talking on people that are rumoured to go here, there, and anywhere. Um, but that moves us on to MotoGP, which was a finishing order of Pecco Van Nye, Brad Binder and Jack Miller, which obviously Matt was a big fan of this result with KTM rearing their head to maybe possibly go and hide it for the next few weeks till they decide to come back and have another good result at another point. But 
credit where credit's due. They were fantastic at the start of the race. Had such a good launch, didn't they, from, from the start? In, in both races, yeah. In both races, in, yeah. could just be described, you know, they, they well, really left. in all races, you mean, because even in the, the, the race that was restarted before yes. that, in all three race starts, they had really good good starts. Yeah, obviously, I don't know if, if it's just, you know, compared to the fact that I think Aprilia's have bad starts. And LH was on pole, but also, you know, the KDMs did start well and they did have good starts. And yes, really, I think we have to be the winner of the weekend in terms of KDM being so good overall. I've got a question for you, though, Elisa. Do you or do you want me to lead the rant on MotoGP stewards? Because I feel like anyone that listens to this podcast has probably heard me say it a million times, but I'm happy and definitely more than capable of doing it a million and one times. So it's up to you. Um, I think you you can take the reins on this one. I can I can bring it down afterwards a bit. You okay. Know? Um, so for anyone who has been under a rock, um, at the second corner of the first lap of the original full Grand Prix on Sunday, not the sprint. God, I'm I'm ready. I'm I'm riled up. Um, Bezeki and Oliveira squeezed together with Fabio Quattararo in the middle of them both, and with Fabio having nowhere to go, had no choice. Bear in mind it's lap one, and couldn't you know ease off and go backwards because he would be brake checking somebody, um, because Bezeki moved over at the last minute. Bezeki didn't get an ulti, which I don't think he would have deserved one because it's lap one and it's very difficult in, in that sort of part of the pack to know exactly where everybody is and not squeeze somebody out and at a place like Kareth. Fabio didn't do anything wrong and Oliveira didn't do anything wrong. Fabio and Oliveira crashed because of it and sadly enough Oliveira, his look continues with a rumoured slight fracture in his humerus, a dislocated shoulder and will have to pass a medical before Le Mans Grand Prix. However, in the restart of this race, because it got red flagged, we had a penalty warning just before the race started that Fabio Quattararo will serve a long lap penalty. Now, I can speak for absolutely everyone, and I I genuinely think everyone being Miguel Oliveira, and I think considering Miguel Oliveira's team manager, Raslan Rosali, even said, yeah, it, it shouldn't have happened. This penalty should have never happened. In a million years, it should have never happened. It's not a penalty. He has not done anything malicious. He's done nothing wrong, more importantly, and has been caught up in a lap one incident, which anybody can have been brought up, been caught up in, and is very likely of happening in a place like Kareth, in that position of the pack. End of. End of. Like, that. there is, there is no fault there. But Quattararo gets a long lap penalty. Now, I know that Freddie Spencer is an idiot, an absolute idiot, and I'll not even refrain from saying anything, even in the slightest, towards a compliment towards this guy because he is the most incompetent steward that I have ever watched since starting to watch this sport. Now, I just want to make things clear that the fans that have been watching MotoGP for the majority of their life and have have followed that follow this sport currently because of the respect and admiration that they have and had 
for the sport that got the, you know that 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 got them into it and that the sport that they were the shown or when they first started watching that's how it was ran it is going more and more further away from that and more towards a championship that is ran to be less competitive less exciting and all in all worse just worse like before I move on to the Peko incident, I do not understand how an, let me make this very clear to anybody that doesn't know who Freddie Spencer is, former multiple world champion, how that person cannot look at that and think, there's nothing anybody could have done there, that's racing. It Literally everyone involved, and I'm talking about... Miguel Oliveira, who is injured because of the incident, right? Because that is racing. You you cannot not get injured in your life racing motorbikes. So let's just make that one clear. Fabio can't do anything, even if he wanted to. And Bezeki couldn't have done anything because he had nowhere else to go. Three don't go into two. It's ha- It happens. It's racing. But Fabio gets a penalty. Bezeki doesn't, even though I don't think he deserves one. But the the one that's been squeezed out gets a penalty. And as always, in every form of penalty that's been given in the last year to to Fabio specifically, or whether it be lack of penalty towards Nakagami because he's not he's not fighting for a championship, so him taking out Rins two weeks in a row in Barcelona and Mugello meant nothing to Freddie Spencer. There is not one ounce of accountability that ever comes from these stewards for anything. That is fact. These stewards give out penalties for the most ridiculous, outlandish reasons when it is not um, exceeding track limits, if it's anything other than that, the penalties are never, ever held with any form of accountability and, as David Emmett says, are put specifically as far away, or the media are put as far away from these stewards so that they cannot be asked why and they cannot be held accountable or even come out and go, that's our bad. And in that moment, a room full of them cannot be held accountable. and be Because these riders are held accountable for things that they shouldn't be. So why are these stewards still allowed to keep reinforcing what they are week in, week out, when we get more inconsistencies and more wrong decisions across the board, whether that be you, you know, you're on the receiving end of it, or you're on the the giving, uh, uh, you know, if, if you're the victim or if you're the cause or whatever, people disagree with it. Aleish even said after Assen last year, which he got ran wide on, he said, I understand why they've given him a penalty, but all in all, considering the rest of the penalties that haven't been given out, it shouldn't be one. So he... I, I, I've, I've lost the will to live when discussing these stewards because... It is never the case of it is always like the same reason that they give a penalty. One week, you don't get a penalty for it. The next week, you get a penalty for it. And like I said, all I keep seeing on Twitter are fans that are new, fans that are old, going, this is getting worse. This is this is becoming ridiculous. This is boring. And people that are just all in all sick of it. The next incident... Peko Banaya. Miller runs wide. Miller runs wide off of the racing line. Peko runs on the racing line, moves into the racing line to overtake him. 
They both come into the racing line. They touch. They touch. Peko, as racing etiquette goes, puts his hand up to say, you know, I, I didn't mean the contact, but, you know, you ran wide, so I'm, I'm taking that place. And gets, and it has to drop him. He has to give it him back. He has to give it him back because he made contact. Peko has done nothing wrong. Peko hasn't done a thing. Peko is on the racing line. He has moved forward because someone has made a mistake. And that person's come back onto the racing line. They've touched. And if anything, that's more Millis doing because he's made the mistake. But none of them, you know, they're both like, all right, then let's just crack on. And by now, has to give has to give his position back. I, honestly, I, I have lost the will to, to even want to discuss it, even though I'm sat here ranting about it. But you can't not. Do you know what I mean? It's one of those that you, you want to ignore it, but it, it messes up that much of the weekend. I I cannot ignore it. The other incident, Fabio runs wide coming out of the long lap penalty. Now, I will agree with the Simon Crayfar view and Elisa's view that we've said in Discord in the sense of you are told if you don't complete it within the white lines that you have to redo it, right? I get that. I completely agree with that. But look at the long lap penalty in Areth. And this is where I actually, and you might want to put this on, um, you might want to carve this into granite because this is very rare that this happens. I agree with Simon Patterson here thoroughly thoroughly agree with him like and that's not me being you know harsh towards Simon Patterson that's not me being you know whining anybody up it's just a lot of the time I see things it frustrates me that he puts it and you know you're not always going to agree with everybody that's it that's journalism that's that's just the world all right but with this I could not agree with him anymore in the sense of you look at that long lap penalty and you look at the full clip Fabio Quattararo is coming out of Jerez's long lap penalty and within probably three yards of coming out of that penalty, wherever you come out of it from, you are back on the racing line. You're back on it. So Fabio has gone whilst turning because the long lap penalty is so tight, turned to go, am I, am I re-entering safely? And has run wide, being a detriment to his long lap penalty already and extending the time that he's done it. Granted, he has, he has missed the lines. So I get why I'll do it again. But no steward comes out to say that's something we need to look into because he shouldn't have had the penalty in the first place. Yes. But look at the penalty line. The penalty line is yards, singular yards away from the, the, the racing line that people are not going to be looking at the long, that shouldn't be looking at along that penalty for people re-entering the track. And they should almost be re-entering from the long lap penalty in a safe position, but can't because of where it's situated. But he's ran wide, meaning he'll be slower going onto the onto the racing line for safety reasons, which we seem to be so adamant about having being more and more safe, which I am completely for. But how can you then say mm, you, you shouldn't be looking to your left to check if you're re-entering properly? Because then it, then it'll be within the lines. So now at Hareth, if you're a GP rider and you get long lap penalty, you've got to basically come out of a tight hairpin long lap trust that you're within that tight line check that you're re-entering safely and if not if you if you can't re-enter safely you've got to slam your brakes on and basically be sat in the middle of the track because you can't slow down to an absolute stop like that you have to slow down onto the racing line going onto the back straight onto the main straight 
rant over, but every point, inconsistencies. Inconsistencies, irregularities, call them what you like. I don't know. Elisa, feel free to take over because I, I think I've said everything I need to say on it, but tell me what you think because I Not would sack all the- of them. Yeah, not to make the rant go any longer, but you actually forgot that before we even even had the Sunday race, we had a a contaged incident with Franco Morbidelli on the first lap of the sprint race that actually gained a long lap incident. I think, yeah, that was also one that Yamaha protested and didn't really see the point. And for my my side also, you know, looking back at, at previous races and seeing that first lap incidents are usually if they are not like the most outrageous moves ever, which also aren't probably are, are rarely you know penalized. And seeing this weekend having two first lap incidents, first corner incidents almost uh, penalized as well, it's an interesting move. You know, I in general I'm not opposed to you know if you uh, having had last year and having had many incidents of riders wiping each other each other out and then you know having no penalties for them. At any point, I understand if you know you wanna, as a steward, stewarding, you wanna, you know, charge, start from clean slate, you know. So you know you you're gonna start to say that you know these things are gonna get penalized. I understand that, but that being said, you know I don't think any of these incidents counted as someone actually wiping someone out or something no. like that. And I you know in you know it's it's not the same. You know, I understand that if you wanna make new presidents, but I don't think these were it. At any point, you know. No, because no, really like, I, I look at the Marquez one in Portimao and I go, albeit Mark has not intentionally wiped him out, Mark has made a mistake, right? And and took somebody out. Like that, you know what I mean? Like there's there's plenty of space around, and he has outright took somebody out. There's a penalty. Alright, I can agree with that. I can completely agree with that. You've ruined somebody else's race through more your fault than anybody else's. So I I get that. But why, when it's not their fault and it's on the first lap of the race, are we penalising people with the same? Yeah. And, and anyone that goes, also... oh, but it's not a double long lap, it's only one long lap, it shouldn't be a penalty. It shouldn't be a penalty. Like, I, I don't care if that was Rolls Reverse. I'm not saying it because it's it's Fabio. Bezek, like I said, Bezeki shouldn't have had a penalty. Fabio shouldn't have had a pen. None of them. And I'm not saying you can do what you want on that one and get away with it. But no one's done anything wrong. Like Peko did nothing wrong. But we just give penalties out for the sake of it. Why? Yeah, it's... I think... And I, I mean, you still saw something like... I, I wouldn't even say that's necessarily a penalty. But then again, you saw in America, you saw Jorge Martin you know, go down and take Alex Marquez with him. That wasn't a penalty. And I think that's more in line of what you would expect when you see, you know, even if you made a mistake. Good point. Most most riders won't mean, yeah, but, you know, that would have made more sense to be to see a penalty for that. Or all the previous races, you know, having had runners taken out, out, but, you know, these ones, not so much. Yeah. That's a good point. Um, Yeah. I, I could not wish for anything more than to see Freddie Spencer and the rest of them go. Because, like I've said, the inconsistencies for the last few years is draining the life out of this sport and what it is. This sport, for the last 10, 15 years, when F1's been dried up, has always been the argument of, 
well, at least our sport, you know, when people are arguing about it, are like, we, we have overtaken. It's back and forth, back and forth. We've got less of it now because of the way that the sport's going with regulations, and we're getting more and more towards less of it because of the way that it's managed. So eventually, it's going to end up being like what F1 was like, and it's just going to end up being you can't overtake. If you do overtake, you'll get penalised for it. And the way that the regulations go more and more of, it's just becoming more and more difficult to overtake. So F- MotoGP, MotoGP fans are not going to like that. And the diehard ones that have been watching it for years and years and years, don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm not saying that they're more important. I'm not. I'm just saying the ones that have been watching it pre this era will hate this era more than anybody because of what got them into it was the elbow to elbow rubbing is racing not all the time not all the time i'm not justifying that but cleaner racing because it was it was advocated and it was you know it was encouraged meaning people got used to it and meaning people that were willing to go and overtake knew that well i'm not going to get penalized every single time i touch somebody or there's a slightest bit of contact between bikes or whether it be you know, it's an aggressive manner or if I crash and I don't take anybody else out, I might get a penalty. So nobody wants to overtake. I don't know. I mean, I'm not saying I want to see people taken out. But even when I heard Brad Binder say, if I would have tried to go for it at the last corner, I'd have probably took us both out. Now, the the gap between Binder and Pecco, I think he would have done. I think he probably would have taken them out. If you had heard that 15 years ago, you'd have been a little bit like, oh, I'd have liked to have seen him gone, for, you know, go for it a little bit. I know the gap's relevant because he wasn't as close as probably what Rossi was and what Marquez was on Lorenzo. I get that. But I do look at it a little bit and think, well, I bet you I bet you any money he's almost thinking in the back of his mind, well, I, I don't want to get a penalty and I don't want to get penalised for this and penalised for that. So I best not. I mean... Like I say, you you would think the people that are giving these penalties out are non-racers, and I, I you know I could sit here saying people like none of these have ever raced before, they've never watched the sport before, and they get to pick who's doing it. The person running it has raced competitively, competitively at the highest level and won in multiple seasons. Like how how can someone from the eighties, which if you go and watch the 80s and go and watch how many penalties people got for X, Y, and Z, look at this year's championship and go penalty, 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 penalty. Like you've just said, Martin wipes out Alex Marquez. Meh, nah, no penalty. Mark Marquez wipes out Oliveira. Double on that penalty. Quattararo gets wiped out through no fault of anybody. Penalty? Pecco overtakes somebody and does nothing wrong. Penalty. Imagine, imagine saying that to somebody. Like, if you brought a friend around to yours and said, "Let's watch MotoGP." I know you've never watched it before. Let's watch this and shown them that from start to finish. I would be embarrassed. To be honest, I'd be embarrassed because if they were like, "Why, why, why has he just been penalised for overtaking?" I don't get it. You, you wouldn't. You can't explain it, can you? You can't even sit there and go, "Oh well." To be fair. I know Pecco's not done absolutely anything wrong and Miller's not done anything wrong, but they sort of just give them out for the sake of it. That's what it seems like. 
Yeah, I think, and I think, you know, uh, you know, there's so, as long as there are penalties, there's going to be discourse over them, you know, that's, that's just how it is, but, you know, and I'm not opposed to the fact that, you know, we've added in the past decades, you know, we added more variety in the, in the types of penalties you can give out, you know, I think as a long, as the long lap as a concept is, is a better than, you know, a, a pit run through a pit lane, what yeah, you what is called it, or stuff like that, and, you know, and in general, I'm not opposed to having a bit more care of the penalties in, in terms of some some things, you know, being penalized yeah. nowadays, you know, I, I don't think that's a wrong thing, but also, you know, as stated, it's just the inconsistency and, you know, it, it feels like uh, the bigger things that actually matter, you know, I think, uh, as you pointed out, so I think last weekend it was pointed out by Simon Patterson that there was um Masia got a pole position in Moto3 after a yellow flag infringe- infringement. There was a rider literally down right next to him on the track. And he got to keep yeah. his pole position. Yeah. And basically that was because, you know, they had, the, the steward admitted that they were wrong and they should penalize him, but it was an hour after to qualify him, so it would be confusing for the fans but, or something. And, you know, you have to say, that's, you that's have to what say I mean. please. But, yes. they, but they'll say that, they'll say that, like, oh, it would be confusing to do it an hour later. But days on from Mark Marquez getting his penalty for, it will be Argentina. Days, not hours, days on, they said, oh no, it's applicable everywhere else. So, yeah, is it confusing just, days on? Is it confusing hours on? Or what What you really mean is, is you don't trust your own instinct and you know that you've messed up, but you won't be accountable, held accountable for it. You'll just sit there and guess and sort of do it under the carpet. And yeah, just... I think that account, lack of accountability and the fact that, you know... Ridiculous. You know, I, I understand it, you know, not, not everything can be... They, you can't always win. I, I'm, I'm sure the steward's job is not easy, you know, I'm not, I'm not saying no. that. But, you, know, you know, the fact that, you know, there's no accountability and, you know, admitting when you've made a mistake. And also the fact that, you know, I think the writers and everyone should have a clear understanding why and they should have their voices heard you know I, I i'm not saying that you know every time a writer complains about a penalty they should get just really know that obviously not but i think in general understanding that you know when when writers when majority people talk that they don't understand why this x incident was a penalty and this wasn't you know and they come off saying that you know the guys don't listen to us and you know even though majority of us are I mean the 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 transcend like the the sort of transparency between sorry transparency should I say can't get my words out uh, between the stewards the fans and the riders would be a lot better if the one of those three people the fans have their say the riders have their say the stewards they have their say but they don't come out and speak about it if they came out and explained a lot more and believe it or not. God forbid, Freddie Spencer, God forbid you actually hold your hands up and go, we messed up. The the transparency would be so much better anyway. But even besides that, I don't get how Dorna and the FIM don't look at this and go, inconsistency, inconsistency, inconsistency. And you can sit there for hours, for hours on multiple examples and go inconsistency for ages and you can't sit there and say i think we need to mix things up a little bit how can you not because if it was in any other role any other role if the marshals 
weren't putting a yellow flag out for when there should be a yellow flag out, if they weren't putting an oil flag or... You'd set, you wouldn't let them keep doing it. You wouldn't let them keep doing it. Oh, for the safety. Oh, but the stewards that aren't bothered about safety and in rewarding people with a pole position through infringing a yellow flag and not letting them, and, and letting them get away with it, that's that's unsafe, but we won't we won't change that because it's too confusing. That, so which way is it? Do you know what I mean? Which way is it? You can't. Yeah, I you think can't. You can't something... sit there and say they don't need to mix it up and get rid. You, you can't. Yeah, I think it was said that uh, next time out in Le Mans, Freddie Spencer is going to come out for the first time in four years, like with the media or something like that. Which, you know, I think that just shows the four years despair that this. Honestly, I, I hope he comes out and I hope he gets bulleted with so many questions about the inconsistencies from all of the journalists rightfully, rightfully, for fans, for journalists, whoever it is watching it, so that we get some answers for the amount of inconsistencies and the ridiculous, insane things that they've done over the last few years and get some answers out of him. But he won't, like he always does. Mm. He'll come out, he'll show his face, he'll answer a couple of questions in the most PR way possible and then just hide back in his hole for the next four years and carry on making mistakes. But, hey... You know, you, you've you've apparently got to sit there and um, just just got to appreciate that that that's what it is. I mean, if I wasn't as a diehard fan of MotoGP as I was, I would have switched off watching that yesterday. Honestly, I'm being said I would have switched off watching it. If if somebody would have said to me, "Here you are, you can use my account, log in and watch it," I would have switched off. I would because. I'd have just been like, well, that's just pointless. That's pointless. Oh, that's pointless as well. Oh, what's the, what's the point? And people might think, oh, what a race at the end. That's the riders at the end of the day. That's the, that's the riders doing that. And you've got what could be that throughout the whole race. And you could have that across the board if you didn't have stewards like that. So you can sit and talk about it forever and a day. But, you know, it's... Um, it's something that we, before we record, on the amount of occasions it's happened, are always sat there going, do we discuss it? Well, we kind of have to. And it's not like, you know, we can do what we want on this podcast, obviously, but in our sort of respect for the podcast in covering everything that's happened and sort of, you know, doing it a good a good service of reviewing the whole weekend, how can you not discuss something like this? Because it's having that bad of an effect on it. So, yeah, that's that's my run over. I do apologise for anyone listening if you have been completely, you know, um, overwhelmed by that. But I've, I'm, I, it's more from the heart than it is from anywhere else. Because ultimately, I don't want to see the sport that I love keep going down the route of what it is doing. Because it's just making it worse and worse. It really is, and. It's certainly not the sport I started watching 20-odd years ago, and it's certainly not the sport I want to keep watching for the next 20 years if it keeps getting like it is, Um, which is sad. But there is a lot of people, Matt Oxley, David Emmett, Simon Patterson, Loris Baz, Michael Vandermark, that have all come out on Twitter that I saw yesterday, let alone what else I've seen. I I could go on and look and find, of everyone being so unhappy with this and... It can't keep going on. So it has to be mentioned. Um, as I said earlier, we would move on to the 
the Honda um, discussion, which we will. Uh, we did kind of cover all points, as Elisa did say, Kalokona did come in. He did finish. He did finish in P16, just outside the points, 36 seconds off the race winner of Pekka Banaya. Um, a good showing, like you say, I think it was a bit of a reward for Suzuka, but ultimately, I would quite like to see Kalokona get Nakagami's ride if Agora doesn't get it. Um, I think he's so, so talented for his age. And yeah, we had, oh, quickly, we did have Vinales with his chain coming off on the last lap. I mean, how Vinales could that be? It, it's it's like the, where was the incident last, last year when he had the malfunction with the right height device and stuff like that? You know? Saturn ring. Yes. I, it's like, uh, I, I feel like these things only happen to, happen to Vinales. It's like, he doesn't crash usually. And every time there's a DNA. No, he's not. So he's not some... a crasher. I'll give him that. Yeah, not yeah. Like some some sort of malfunction happens. Yeah, but unfortunately, some of us had him in our fantasy team, so you know that's not. I completely forgot about fantasy. I can't lie. I don't even know who's in my team. I, I literally can't remember. Yeah. Anyway, I and I on on the whole, I actually you know discussing the Aprilia one as as said before because I had Aprilia both Aprilia's factories on my as my gold driver in my fantasy. I was really adamant on them doing well and you know it, it wasn't the worst weekend you know they could have all DNF'd but it, you know I think this weekend showed that they really has some lacking maybe with the starts or something you know but the qualifying okay and I mean Alexis got the pole position but you know not really the results he was looking for you know DNF in the sprint and uh, fifth place in the GP you know I'm, I'm sure he was hoping for a uh, for a podium there, so I think uh, moving forward, you know, you, you they really have to be working for some podium results. Actually, yeah, it was um, it was a very Vinales thing to happen. Um, speaking of um, particular traits, um, Joan Zarco doing what Zarco does. <laughs> Any thoughts? I, Just nothing um, to say, is there really? Zarko is he's it's Zarkoing, you know. You know, you you expect when you see Zarko, it's like he qualifies somewhere in eighth, and he's like he's really fast at the end of the race. He gets a podium, you know. It's everybody claps, you know. It's nice to see him there. He crashes, you know. That's what Zarko does. Stuff like that, you know. It's it happens, yeah. you know. I, I. It's always a yo-yo season, isn't it, with with yes. Zarko? Um. But yeah, in terms of other rides, we did have Jorge Martin narrowly missing out on a podium and Alicia Spargo making up the top five. Um, and obviously, we have to talk about Danny Pedrosa coming in on his second wild card after the last time I believe he was on the podium. I remember them saying, I think it was 2018, 2017, something like that. Um, I can't remember what it was. I think it was 2017. What? Podium. Like Danny Pedrosa's last podium. Um, so like they were saying, like if he gets on the podium again, everyone was like, "Oh, he might be able to get on the podium." At least he's getting a big book of results out. I can't <laughs> remember what it was. I don't know if it was ninety. I I've lost. Uh, ninety was Lorenzo. It last win deep. was two thousand seventeen. But um, when, when was his last podium? Yes, I can check that. It would. It's definitely twenty eighteen. I'm sure it is. He he might not have gotten one. No, he didn't get one in 2018. No, no. Really? 
Yes, no podium in. Wow, that's his last podium me. was actually his last win. It was 2017 Valencia. Wow. No, no, that was the one. No, did he win Valencia 2017? No, he didn't. Did he win? No, he won it. Did he win at Sepang? Yes. No, that was Dovi in twenty seven. Yes, Valencia yeah. twenty seventeen. He won it. So that was that his surprises last me actually. I thought he was twenty eighteen that he got his last podium, but no. Yeah, I, I did so actually. Uh, a couple of years back, I was just a while back. I was looking looking back at the results, and I thought you know twenty eighteen that you you know he didn't win. I knew that, but I I thought he had the podium, but no, he got wow. a fifth in boards, but no podium in twenty eighteen. Well, um, besides that. It was really nice to see him back and just unbelievably, you know. You I think know, it, I, I stated this on Twitter earlier, but I think it cannot be overstated how how much of a great job he's doing, you know, in terms of like, obviously it's learning controls, yes, but he hasn't really competitively like at all. And he has tested, yes, in Heret and on the KDM, but also the last time he raced was in the... Uh, stop racing 2021 Austria 2021 that, yeah yes so it's a couple it's a season back over overall and you know go down the days you know nowadays you don't see riders wild cars getting podiums you don't see it actually then you know just looking at the results you know you see the standing riders even Stefan Prado who we last week discussed has raced like half the races that Mark Marquez has and obviously Honda is not the same bike but still you know you, you look at the Replace, replacement riders, the wild cards, and they are usually in a league of their own in the back. And a top 10 result is unheard of in this modern, modern day and age of, of modern GP. And you know, having got it actually qualified well, you know, at some point I was thinking that maybe he could get a pole, just lost it in the last sector, but still. And then, you know, sprint and full race and managing to pull that off. I mean, wow, I'm. I'm I'm shocked. Like I expected him to get like points because I think he looked good, but still, you know, this is a lot more than I was expecting. Yeah, yeah, he's um he's definitely my um rider of the day. That's that's for sure. Um, just quickly, I've um I've given Simon Patterson my firm handshake of verbal appreciation through this um. <laughs> through this podcast but I'm going to give one last um, handshake to him in giving me this this stat I've just seen him tweet because I've been trying to keep an eye on the testing updates and he has put sorry to dig the knife a little bit deeper into the Honda um, sort of disaster at the minute but Shoamir has crashed as many times this weekend at Hareth as he did in all of his title winning season in 2020 that just goes to show, doesn't it? The um, it's not the rider, it's the bike. But um, yeah, just a quick stat for you there. I thought you, I thought you quite like. But yeah, I don't, yes. I don't, I wouldn't say I like it. You know, as I, I've said before. You know, I think John here hasn't had the best run of luck lately with the bike, and obviously I'm, you know, just a whole lot of bad momentum. You know, crashes. I think he's crashed out of not every yeah. sprint race, like three sprint races, and. Races well, he didn't and... race in Austin, did he? Yes, he's crashed out of two races and three sprint races. So he yeah. has one points finish in 11 from um, Pokemon. So it's not yeah. been a good 
start of the year, peak of it likely. Yeah, to, yeah. To put it lightly, yeah, you'd be you'd be about right there. Um, but yeah, there was a good fight for the front, I suppose, uh, with Peko, Brad, and Jack. Brad Binder, I have no idea how he gets that bike stopped and the angle that he he parks it in at the most hard braking zones of any track. His bike is basically facing towards a different postcode compared to everybody else. It's it's incredible. Um, and I really did want to see him win that race because I think he thoroughly deserved it with how he rode. Um, he was fantastic in the sprint, obviously, um, winning that. And yeah, no, I, I just I just really am quite surprised with KTM, pure and simply because it, it, I just I don't understand them. I don't think anybody does. It's, it's, if you'd have said to me five years ago that in five years' time, at Hareth of all places... KTM and Ducati and Aprilia would be the ones fighting for the race wins and podiums, and Yamaha and Honda would be nowhere near. I I really don't know why. I don't know how I'd react. I don't think I would believe anyone that would tell me that. Um, it's just it's a weird time we're living in in terms of MotoGP. The Europeans seem to be pushing on so so well in the way that they're they're developing their bikes, and the Japanese seem to be a mile off. Um, Definitely, I think I think we're for KDM. What really made the weekend was once again the qualifying. You know, they had three riders with Danny, uh, Jack, and Brad all in Q two, and Brad actually made it through Q one there. So you know that's. Great qualifying, I think. I think it was a bit aided by the fact that it was uh, a drying, tr- drying track at some point, so it really messed some people up with bits and stuff like that. But still, you know, great showing and proof to show that when they can qualify, they, they can get the result. I still have some doubts overall for the whole performance throughout the season. I think Brad showed that I think he's the stronger race rider, but I think he has more trouble qualifying than Jack has. Which you know, it's uh, it's kind of the mixed situation with those two, but yeah, great results from them. Yeah, great result. Which obviously, as everyone can expect, Matt's riders of the day, and I say riders because he says Red Bull KTM riders. Do I need to explain myself? Yeah, I I I instantly thought when I saw the race, um, when I saw the checkered flag. Sorry. Straight away in the back of my mind, I was like, well, I already know who Matt's picking for his rider of the day. And it was always going to be one of, if not all, Red Bull KTM riders, which, like I said, credit where credit's due, because they did really outdo themselves with all three of them being in the top seven. Which, you know, like like you said, I don't mean to bang on about it, but with Danny Pedrosa to finish in the top seven, I say top seven, to finish seventh as a wild card is just... Yeah, it's it's phenomenal. Um, rider of the day for you, Elisa. Hmm, Obviously, I've, I've said I'm picking Danny, so yes. it's just up to you now. You know what? I want to give it to Takanakagami. You know, he got ninth. I think that's that. You know, something. I don't think it's the best result, but you know, that's something you really don't get. You know, as a, as a satellite rider and as Honda rider, you know. The top 10 is a, is a good result in terms of sometimes getting them. So I think, you know, he stayed on the bike compared to other Honda <laughs> riders. <laughs> you stayed on the Honda for 20 laps or whatever it was, 23 laps, like, here, have rider of the day. 
Um, yes. Yeah, but so, he, he qualified well, as at least. He, he also qualified yeah. in the Q2. So that's Qualifying was so weird, cool. wasn't it? Q1 was full of, like, we had... I'd love to know when the last time that we had... I mean, you kind of can't include this because Bastianini was injured, but we technically did have, because he entered the Grand Prix, we had two Ducatis, two factory Ducatis, two factory Hondas, two factory Yamahas in Q1. Like, I don't know if that's ever happened. I genuinely don't know if that's ever happened. I don't think it has. I mean, again, I I don't memorise qualifying sessions, but... I don't think it's likely with Marcus being in a Honda for the last... That's what I mean. Like, even when Ducati yeah. weren't as competitive, Yamaha and Honda were so good. Yeah. And now Ducati are really competitive. When When is... How many Q1 appearances in factory Ducati has Peco had and Quattararo had? And Mar- Marquez, you know what I mean? It's, I think that's a first. Um, if it isn't, and it's it's happened before, by all means, feel free to correct me. Um, but Q1, I, I, I obviously I watched all the practice sessions, but I remember tuning into Q1, and I almost like just double checked myself, and I was just like, when you look at the list of Q1, it was just, it was just absolutely stacked. We had the championship leader at the time in Bezeki. Like I said, two factory Ducatis, two Hondas, two Yamahas, and it was just, it was just so surreal. Like I said, with like everything going on that weekend, and just to see the amount of writers that really you would never put in the bracket of fighting for top five in a Q one session, and then you went to Q two, and there was like Alex Marquez, Takanakagami, and it was like, what world am I in? At that point, I realized when I looked at the Q1, went to Q1, I realized it was probably going to be over for Fabio going into Q2 because I realized yeah. that once you have Peko there, he's going to go into Q2. You know, I, I, I didn't really think there was any doubt. And I think having, uh, obviously, Best didn't make it through, but you know, having other Ducatis there, I think it's only two spots to go into Q2. It's a lot of work. So, yeah. Yeah. Sadly. Um. Yeah. So... Yeah, just quickly, the championship standings are Peko Banaya on 87 now, with Bezeki on 65 and Binder on 62. So, I mean, I'll be honest, I think internally Ducati will be looking at Peko right now and going, all of our competitors are nowhere to be seen in terms of ones that they would have lined up for the end of the year. Yeah, nowhere um, to be seen. Like, like Fabio Cuadraro is 11th. 11th! <laughs> yeah. You know, I think... I, I mean, he's, point, he's 47 more... points off, which isn't yes. incredible. Like, it's not 91 or whatever it was, that 92 that Peko brought back, but it's still 47 points after four rounds. Yeah, I think, you know, at this point, I think Ducati are probably going to get the KDM as the next, <laughs> next you know, yeah. for I think knowing the KDM, I think uh, Brad Binder at 62 might creep into something, but I think that also depends on yeah how how the rest of the qualifying of the season. The season I'm impressed goes. with Binder this year. Yeah, I mean, I am impressed with Binder this year. He, yeah. he has he's stepped it up a notch so far. Anyway, I, I think he, as as I said before, he will contend for the championship once he qualifies into the Q2, like consistently. Mm. But yeah. as long as he is not doing that, I don't think he's winning a championship. Yeah, no, me neither. Um. I mean, if we're talking in that same bracket, Maverick Vinales is sat in fifth. He might, he might fight for a championship. <laughs> he, um, he, he, he can fight for it, but he won't win it. You know, I, I, yeah, not no, with I agree. this weekend, at least. You know, 
Yeah, true, true. He got um, he got one good start at one point. Like Yeah, yeah, I remember. It yeah. was the race uh, first race start of the Sunday race and he got like fifth, he was behind Alex. But then yes. red flag and Yeah, it got red flag around the back sector. Didn't it? Yeah. yeah, so which I find really weird when people, I mean, again, you're going to be frustrated, but I find it weird when Maverick and Jack were like throwing their arms out as though to say, oh, I did really well as well. It's like, yeah, no, no one chose to like crash and have a red flag. Do you know what I mean? Like no one, no one wants that. Right. But yeah. Um, but yeah, that is the end of our very, very drawn out Spanish GP review, which I did ironically say before we started recording. I don't think there's that much to talk about. Um, which always ends up being the case um, with our GP reviews. Um, we are back at Le Mans in two weeks' time, which we are hoping to get an episode out in the meantime with a particular episode, which we're not quite sure on what it will be yet, but we have a few things in the pipeline that we are planning to get over the line. So keep your eyes out, keep keep your eyes peeled for um, for what comes out. But in the meantime, if you have enjoyed this episode of our review, then be sure to leave a review on whatever audio platform you're listening on, whether that be Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or whatever it is that you are listening to us on. And give us a follow on Twitter at RedSectorGP. Be sure to follow all of our personals. If you do feel free on keeping up to date with us, they are all in the bio of the Twitter. And if you want to join the Discord, if you have Discord, feel free to join that too. Talk Everything Bikes, GP, F1 and numerous other amounts of absolute waffle at times. Um, But that has been us, that's been me, that's been Elisa. And with that, keep the throttle pinned.